Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. All right, guys, welcome back to another back-to-back episodes, hopefully, of the Finding Backcountry podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Whitwer, however the guy says it that I hired that did that. (laughs) At first, I'm like, oh, that, that's got to change. And then, you know, whatever, it's all I had. And now it's, I don't even care. So uh, here we are. We are back. Uh, hopefully you cat, you caught the kind of welcome back catch up episode of the fall. The just real, uh, you know, quick 30,000 foot view of what in the heck I've been doing for the last, you know, three, four or five months or whatever it's been. So if not, go back and re-listen to that, kind of summarized everything I've been up to, all the hunts I've been on. And this, however, is going to be a uh, just a podcast on mule deer specifically. And so I, what I did was a Q&A. I like doing these, especially when the podcast has been dormant for a little bit because it's just a good kickoff, like easy easy episodes and and really just see what you guys are into and what you're up to and what questions you want to dive into Um, while I, you know, I'm getting new guests lined up and thinking about, you know, new angles and topics and stuff. So, um, and this might trigger something of someone to bring on or whatever. I'll be honest. I have not read through these much other than just glancing at them real quick. And so, so, you know, I might get into a halfway through reading a question, decide to, you know, go to the next one or whatever, but yeah, uh, mule deer Q and A, and here we go. Um, let's see. Let's start with uh, DJ Spen. However, you know D E E J Spen. Um, where to look after mule deer strip velvet and change their pattern, but haven't migrated yet. Um. So this is going to happen mid-ish September in most places. Now, certain years it's earlier, certain years it's later. Um, this year, I believe, was like a real early velvet stripping year for some reason. And I am not smart enough to know why. I don't know if it's a weather thing. I don't know if it's, you know, a moon cycle phase. I don't know. Um, but... On the flip side, I killed that buck in Colorado a couple years ago on September 19th, right? And he was, and again, typically from what I've seen, the bigger bucks will will shed velvet first. It seems like maybe the younger bucks will hold on to it longer typically. Maybe I'm mixing that up, but from what I've seen. And I mean, he was as big a buck as I've ever killed and he was in full velvet. Now it was, I mean, as soon as his head hit the dirt, you know, luckily he didn't crash down a big cliff or something because it would have been really trashed. But um, as soon as his side of his antlers hit the dirt, you know, that that little, he's got a little six inch, um, you know, uh, kicker that kind of turns up, hook hooker 
on the side that hit the dirt and that velvet peeled off. I mean, he was, I would estimate he was days or possibly, you know, less than 24 hours that night, maybe from stripping his velvet. But regardless, he was still in velvet, you know, September 19th, uh, in the high country. So, uh, it just depends, but they typically will or can change their behavior. Now, you want my personal opinion? I think that hunting pressure and hunter pressure and human pressure affects that more than just stripping their velvet. I think that I think that stripping their velvet in addition to the hunting pressure is their excuse to push and what they'll do is they won't leave the country, right? Or they won't they're not going to drop an insane amount of elevation. But they will just go from, you know, if you picture a generic backcountry mountainside that's a, you know, a generic peak and a buck's living at a, you know, 10,500 or 11,500 or wherever, you know, the kind of top third of that mountain is. And there's just scattered pine trees here and there. And, you know, if you were there in July or August, you're probably going to see them bedding just, you know, overlooking the whole world and they can see around them and, you know, they're out in the open, but they're behind the shade of a tree all day, but there's only four trees, you know, at that elevation, they're going to drop, you know, one substantial level from there and, or they're going to go, you know, more around the backside, north facing slopes or whatever that are a lot thicker. But, you know, whether it's like, oh, I stripped my velvet and the very next day they're down in the trees. I don't think so. I think there's plenty of bucks that get killed you know, on those Hurley high country, you know, hunts that have stripped and they're still maybe in their summer exactly where they were in their summer routine. Um, but if there is any sort of hunting pressure and they strip their velvet, like they are going to start utilizing that country differently. And so the, to answer the question of where to look, um, same general mountainside or mountain, you know, again, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, high country, Wyoming, high country, Colorado, right? If we're chasing mule deer and velvet, that's, you know, a lot of times. And so they will be in the same general vicinity, but they will be, you know, either in the thicker side of the ridge on the mountain, right? Um, around the backside, or they will be down, you know, 500 feet is usually all it takes or whatever. And, you know, now they're bedding in the thick stuff and staying in there utilizing that, um, cover, you know, they're going to stay in there longer. They're going to come out later. They'll be in there sooner in the morning. Um, you know, as, whereas in early, you know, say you're up there in mid July, you might see a big buck, let the sun hit his back right in the morning. And they don't put up with that kind of stuff. That's kind of their trigger. It seems like when the hunts are going on, especially and real big bucks in real, like real pressured units or real high, you know, high profile. There's a lot of activity going on. They're well in the trees before, usually before seeing light. Okay. The real, I mean, this is why the big, big, big bucks don't get killed. I think they really start utilizing that country differently. And usually when you hear of a guy killing one of those bucks, uh, in, you know, in the later seasons or whatever, it's, you know, Oh, he, walked in and was still hunting and, you know, caught the buck, you know, movement in the Aspens ahead of him or whatever, um, you know, or, or even high country in the pines or whatever, um, before the buck knew he was there. But 
you know, it's not typically glassing them, you know, from sun up until, you know, nine 30 in the afternoon until they make their hard bed or whatever. It's just not like that. Uh, once you hit that mid to late September and the velvet's gone and there's hunting pressure. So, uh, where to look same, same spot that you've hopefully seen them before, or you've done your, you know, and if you, if you're coming into it with background and scouting history and, Hey, I know that that buck was living on this mountain range, just work it. Like you've got to, you know, you've got to think like a big buck at that point and you've got to be willing to do the hard stuff. Right. And, and I'm learning this, um, but you've got to be willing to spend three hours during the middle of the day, um, still hunting and, you know, in other words, two steps and glass, two more steps and glass, you know, two more steps and glass through 400 yards or 300 yards or whatever it is, maybe 30 yards um, of really thick pine that you know is around the backside of where this buck was feeding all summer because he's probably bedded in there once he strips his velvet. Um, so you've got to, you know, where to look? Well, you think like a big buck, right? They're going to be in those uh, thicker bedding spots and, you know, cooler bedding spots. Uh, that's kind of the time of year when those big bucks start. You know, you'll notice the big bucks too, especially they will lose their summer coat the first first they are the first deer on the mountain uh to get rid of that that cool summer coat kind of reddish and it's it's one way you know you're it you don't when you're hunting big bucks in september you're not looking for that reddish glow that you were looking for in july because it's gone like if it's a big buck he's already got his gray coat on okay that buck in colorado i mean he i i don't it's been a couple years since i've looked at his coat but um I don't think he had a lick of his summer coat on him. It was all that gray winter coat. That is the equivalent of you putting on, you know, a Kafaru Lost Park parka in, you know, the end of summer and just waiting for sitting outside waiting for winter. You are going to be hot like those bucks, you know, and they're kind of, you know, I, I don't think it's as much they're kicking into that mode of I'm getting ready for the rut yet. Um, but they're, they've got that winter, basically that early winter coat and they're just sitting there waiting out and it still might be hot, hotter than blue blazes up in those high country hunts, especially. Um, and so they just are not going to tolerate sitting out in the sun, just like you wouldn't, right. Put a big puffy jacket on and go down in, you know, the desert, um, you know, in August or whatever in September, like you're going to be heading for the shade or getting inside to the AC real quick. Right. And so anyway, it's just one more reason that they are going to be tucked in that thicker, uh, portion of the country, you know, whether it's, you know, down in elevation or just around the backside North facing slope of the same mountain that you've been seeing them on. And so same answer, if you're going into it blind and you're just showing up somewhere, um, you know, late September, you know, bow hunt or whatever it is, or muzzleloader hunt somewhere. Um, same tactics. You just, you know, you're obviously, um, you just shooting in the dark a little bit. Right. And so, uh, tracks, right. That's, that's a good time to look down and notice tracks. Sometimes that time of year, uh, you know, you'll get those, um, early snows or whatever, and you can use those, those snows are just, you know, deadly, um, accurate to tell when and where, 
if there's bucks moving around in country. So um, that's a really good way to tell if a, if a big buck is hanging out in a thick piece of timber is without going in there and blowing him out of a, you know, a patch of 200 yards of timber, you could make a perimeter sweep right in the middle of the day and go real slow and real quiet. Maybe even, you know, so that you're, you're downwind, right? You're keeping the wind. So you're not pushing your wind into that timber if you think he's in there. Um, but just making a, as much of a perimeter sweep as you can without giving yourself away with the wind and the noise and checking for tracks, right? That's, I mean, they gotta, they gotta leave tracks, right? And so if you can find that a big buck is, you know, exiting and entering coming out where you thought, Hey, you know, I think this is where he would be coming out to feed at night, but man, I'm just, you know, I'm up at first light and I sit there till dark and nothing like he's probably still in there. Uh, you just got to know that he's in there and he's utilizing it differently. And that once you see that big track going in and out a couple of times or whatever you catch on the ground, that's, you know, strike boom. Now you're going in there and you're still hunting that piece of timber or get real creative and beat him in there. Right. Um, you know, come in from the backside of where you think he's coming in and meet him in his bed, right? Uh, having him walk in onto you, you know, especially if it's not super, super thick, uh, can be super deadly too. So hopefully that's a good long answer to that question. What causes a Silas outdoors? What causes a deer to blow up gaining extras or inches of mass in a single year? Well, um, the instant answer that is usually the case, especially in the lower half of the, of the U S right. The lower half of the hemisphere here, um, or whatever the right word is, um, moisture, like that feed, that early moisture from, you know, getting good rain, whatever spring rains. And then that grass is popping up and then a good, you know, summer rain, couple of good summer rains where they're getting that solid quality feed, um, all year, in the, in the desert country, we're talking Nevada, you know, the lower half of Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, like almost a hundred percent guarantee it's feed. Right. Now, obviously they've got to have the genetics too. That's just an underlying like given, right. A deer's got to have the genetics or they're just, you know, if they don't have that in them to have all these, what you're talking, you know, extras and mass and all that. And a single, like they obviously have to have the genetics in them. And that's, that's, as valid as anything, right? If you're hunting in an area that just has crap genes or, you know, no big, no big, big bucks. Um, you know, I'm kind of thinking of, uh, when we used to bow hunt in Nevada, like, God, the like overgrown two by three and three by two. And I, I don't remember ever seeing a buck or even seeing a buck come out of there that had like a bunch of extra stickers and kickers and mass and trash, right? Like you would see in like, you know, Southern Utah type areas or, you know, Wyoming, right? We've got that genetic here in Wyoming, right? Think of some of those big bucks that have been killed over the years and they're just, you know, stovepipe mass. They've got, you know, they're four, seven on one side and 12 on the other. And they're just like, there was never any bucks like that in Nevada. And whether that's because they got over hunted and they're all killed too early, I guess, or just the genetic wasn't there. I don't think it was. Um, you know, cause we saw some mature bucks and guess what? Every time they're basically a four point, just a slick solid four. Uh, so being in the right place with the right genetics and then the math or the, the moisture, which leads to the feed and the nutrition when they're growing those antlers is I guarantee is almost makes up 95% of it. 
Um, and then just age, right? Like a, a buck is, you know, and, and even then you'll see young bucks that have little, you know, inlines and stickers and stuff. And just, you can tell that, you know, I killed one once on the Wasatch that was a, a young three by four or whatever, but he was already like, he had, you know, a couple little kickers off one side and little, you know, and if that deer was able to get the age, right, this is back before I was, you know, I was just looking for some sort of decent buck. And if that deer was allowed to go another two years, I bet, uh, boom, he's going to, he's got it in him. He's got the genetics. He's going to blow up. So it's not just that once bucks get age, they get those stickers and kickers that goes back to the genetics. Right. But they have to, you know, when you're talking like blow up, right. When you use the word blow up, I'm, you know, I'm picturing a buck that's like goes from, you know, 175 to like boom, 210, right. Or 220 all of a sudden. And that happens. Um, they've got to be at that age, right. They've got to be probably five and a half would be my guess of the over under, right. They've got to be, you know, over five years old, probably. So, uh, my buddy, AJ Dubay 2.0 wire white tells so much cooler than mule deer. The literal only reason I can think is that they, I've heard they taste better and I can't even validate that because I've never shot or killed I've eaten one whitetail in my entire life. Ironically, it was like when my wife, before I was even married to my wife and she was going to school out in Virginia, Southern Virginia. And I went out to visit her cause I was, um, you know, lovesick and over like whatever, uh, Thanksgiving or something. And somebody around town that she knew or something, um, was like, Oh, here, try this whitetail. Right. And they had a roast and I don't even remember what it tastes like at the time, but um, and we probably cooked it wrong anyway, but that's literally the only reason, AJ. Otherwise, uh, that's a stupid question. Uh, well, oh, my buddy Walt Whittemore, 71, most underrated state for mule deer. <sighs> underrated. So when I think underrated, I'm thinking like potential relative to, you know, how hard it gets hunted. Honestly, for me right now, Idaho, Idaho is probably the most underrated. I continue to see big gnarly bucks coming out of Idaho and I bet half of those tags are over the counter. You know, they have decent odds on some really good mule deer tags anyway, because the way they run their draw system, right? They, they make guys who want to hunt those once in a lifetime sheep, moose, goat, and whatever else, um, shoes that they're not going to apply for the special draw of the deer elk and antelope right which boom right right there you're going to you know a certain percentage of guys are going to not apply for hunts you know and 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 then just the state in general there's a lot of big canyons and nooks and crannies and backcountry in idaho and you know they just seem to have some just real good mule deer habitat and you can still get tags over the counters kind of right in idaho like that is going to go away soon. You mark my word. That's why I'm going to jump on another tag this year because, you know, it's like, oh, they used to give over the counter tags on this Arizona strip back in the, you know, whatever, the 70s or whenever that was. And everybody talks about it. And, oh, if I would only know, well, that's how the Idaho over the counter is going to be. I hate to say that on a podcast, but so, yeah, I, I think the most underrated state, uh, Idaho, you know, Nevada, everyone understands that there's big bucks in Nevada and they go after them. It's why it takes, you know, uh, 20 plus points to draw 
Uh, Utah, obviously, you know, very highly sought after. Uh, New Mexico, I don't think, is... uh, They just don't have the mule deer quality in general to be rated or underrated. Uh, Arizona, you know, same deal. You kind of got the big, big, big hitters there, the strip and the kaibab, so to speak, and 3A, 3C or whatever it is. You know, and, and there's obviously a couple others that the locals will know about and find big bucks, but pretty well rated, right? Uh, you know, maybe even overrated on some of these states. Uh, Wyoming, right? I feel like the mule deer in Wyoming are just taking a beating for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, the winters we can't, I don't know, over hunting or whatever the case is, but I don't think Wyoming is over or underrated by any means. Montana's definitely not underrated. I think it's probably overrated. Uh, but Idaho, I think Idaho's a sleeper there. Uh, let's see. Alberta Mountain Outfitters, late September, early October, when the big guys have stopped and headed down to the timber. So kind of talked about that earlier with the strip and the velvet thing. Uh, but the difference that I want to talk about when you're talking like early October, when the big guys have stopped, and headed down to the timber to me that's let's talk like the month of october right in general and what the difference will be is they will um well two things they'll separate themselves right a buck in sept bucks in september might still be hanging with other bucks right when they like they they shed their velvet and then they're going into the timber but they're still kind of in that like bachelor group you know, buddy, buddy, it's like, you know, one thirty in the morning on the night of a real good party with all your buddies. And it's like, you're just about to go home for the night by yourself. But, uh, you know, you're still there, you know, having a few beers or whatever you drink, uh, stupid analogy, but October hits and the big difference there that I want to point out that I saw, um, is bucks will start separating themselves. They'll go, They'll go solo, especially big bucks. Um, they are kind of in that, you know, pre pre rut, so to speak, in October. They're 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 almost in that, you know, I don't want to say staging yet, because I don't think that they've in October in general, I don't think that they have left necessarily where they spend, you know, that's more the end of October, first part of November, where they'll go pre-stage. And and that's what I mean by that is they'll go you know, almost migrate, so to speak, to where they're going to rut, but they're, and they're there, but they are not with the does, right? That's a little different mentality, I think. This would be like, um, again, that, that kind of, it's why big bucks are so hard to kill. They go by themselves. They go into the thick stuff. Um, yeah, you know, there's not a real question here. He's just kind of wanting to talk about late September, early October when the big guys have stopped and headed down to the timber. A lot of those same tactics I talked about earlier. Understanding that, especially if you've pre-scouted and and listen, the, the biggest fallacy, in my opinion, with mule deer in the October time frame is that they're they're gone. Is that oh, if you if I see a buck in July, August, and through September or whenever you see it in that frame and then you don't see him there in October. Wow, oh, he's gone. He's he's migrating. Bullcrap. Bullcrap. I don't I call bullcrap. Those bucks are not moving and un, unless two two reasons. 
the rut, which just flat out isn't going to drive them out of there until November-ish. So if we're talking October 15th, no way. That buck is not even, it's not even on his mind other than just, you know, I'm going to sit and fatten up so that I can beat the piss out of some other younger buck when the rut comes. But he's not in any way, shape, or form thinking about chasing does yet. Uh, and Or two, massive snowstorm. Like, massive snowstorm. Now, I don't even think hunting pressure does it. Nope. I was going to say possibly like an insane amount of hunting pressure. I don't buy it. I don't, I like, I bet it's a 2% chance that like there's enough hunting pressure that's going to like physically push a buck. Like now, now when I say push a buck, I'm talking like from his original summer mountain range, right? That might include a square mile, right? All like to go 30 miles to his winter ground. That's not going to happen because of pressure. It's not going to happen. I don't believe it. But a massive, massive, like unseasonable snowstorm, right? And even then, even then, okay, point in case, two years ago, that Colorado buck that I killed, if you remember 2020, massive snowstorm in the high country, like right as that hunt opened, guys were up there like September, whatever it was, 12th or something, this like, like they got like up to two feet in the high country. Like it was insane snowstorm, early out of season snowstorm. And there was even guys like there were guys who I know who are just absolute mule deer freaks, like that were telling me that the chances of those bucks were going to be already pushed out and that they were going to leave and be like, boom, they're going to be down, you know, maybe not like down in, again, not down in the wintering ground yet. Right. They're not just going to do that because of one September snowstorm, but like, oh, those bucks, they're not going to be up high. They're going to be a thousand feet down. They're going to be down on these lower benches. That's where you need to look. I killed that buck at like around 11,000 feet above tree line. Okay. That buck had, and that was about, I don't know, ballpark, probably seven or eight days, right? Six or seven days from that snowstorm. And there were the only snow left was on the north facing slopes. And there was still, you know, three or four inches on the, even more on some of those north facing slopes up there. That buck worked his way. I, what I bet happened is for a day or two, it got so bad that he pushed down a thousand feet to where he could get to, you know, and even then I don't like, (laughs) I don't think so, man. I think those bucks will hang out in belly deep snow until they absolutely have to. The big, big bucks. Now, if we're talking two points and three points and, you know, little wannabe four points, like that's a different story. But if we're talking big, big bucks, even the snowstorms, like even the nastiest snowstorms, I don't believe it. Uh, go read Mike Eastman's book on on high country mule deer hunting. And he tells a story about him and his brother, uh, Rod, I think is his name. Anyway, and they're after this buck, and they basically backtrack him up to where they figured he wintered. And he, the sucker in November, the first part of November is still belly deep in snow, like up at, you know, over 10,000 feet, if I remember right, just plowing his way through snow. Because uh, here's the thing, right? Think about this. Is even when there's, even with a foot of snow on the ground, but even, let's say there's no snow, and it's just, it's November 1st, like, the high country in November 1st still has the best quality feed that that deer is going to get the rest of the year and throughout the winter until May or June or whenever the, the green up starts, right? Think about that. 
even that feed at the high country that's burned off by, you know, late September, right? They get those, that first like nasty frost or whatever. And that, that feed kind of burns off and stops growing real hard. And like all the way through October, the biggest fallacy is that those bucks are gone and they're not, they're just not those bucks. I mean, heck you can even watch those radio collar studies. Okay. The, like Wyoming and wherever else they have these radio collar studies and these are probably does. Okay. They, they rarely call her. I mean, they do call her bucks, but you know, the, they don't, I don't think they call her big, big bucks very often if they can help it. Cause it's hard, right? They, like picture how much a, a big bucks neck probably doubles or triples in size come the rut and imagine putting a collar on them that's going to stay on their head or whatever and not cause problems but so these are probably does when you're looking at those radio collar studies you know someone like david long or someone that's really dove into those could tell you better than me but i bet i bet that 80 percent of them are does and even them you'll watch them september same spot october same spot october same spot week after week october october they're still in the same spot First of November, week of November, they're still in the high country. Those does are still there. And it's not until like, like first, second week in November, boom. And then, and then it's just a mass exodus, right? And that's when it all happens. Um, but I really believe that they're trying to stay up there as long as they can possibly survive. Because that is, once they go to the winter ground, like that feed don't get better. It gets worse, even on the burned out high country stuff. So anyway, huge long rant you know, to talking about kind of early October, but those same tactics, right? Uh, the thick timber, that's where those bucks are going to be. They will be in their little secondary lower level living quarters, right? But again, that's on the same mountain range. Like that's the fallacy is that oh, they're gone. Like they're not on this mountain. They're down, they drop down into the bottom of the valley. They're heading out of there. And those, if it's a high country buck that spent his summer at 10, 11, 12,000 feet or whatever state we're talking, uh, I don't believe it. He's still up there. Steve Evans, what's up, buddy? Uh, when and what was the turning point that got you addicted to mule deer? Ah, oh, man, good question. Uh, two things. Killing a few bulls and seeing a few bulls get killed, whether it was me or other people. And, like, you know, it just I, – I think it's a personality thing a little bit, right? Like – um, you know, I don't know. I just, I kind of, anyway, I've hunted bulls enough, uh, that it felt just redundant a little bit, especially in September. It's like, Oh yeah, bull bugle. Now I will admit like killing big elk is extremely difficult. Like, like actual real Boone and Crockett 380 plus 85 plus inch bulls. Very, very rare and extremely hard to do. I'm not taking anything away from them you know, but like, I don't know. Um, so I had, I killed a few elk and the other thing was just honestly, like my brother, my brother got me addicted to it. Like watching him, he had a few years there where it was just like, you know, we hit the right tags and the right units and, uh, it was the right quality of years and stuff like that. And like seeing the, how hard it was for us helping him and him doing it himself on some cases, to tip those big bucks over, like, and then trying to do it myself, kind of, kind of half pregnant with, you know, hunting elk hardcore and hunting deer hardcore. And like, you know, and then seeing how hard it actually was to kill a big, big, big buck. And I'm still, 
I still am, you know, obviously I don't have anything figured out. I didn't even pull the trigger this year. So, uh, just the challenge of it, man, like, you know, it's, it's such a, an art, it's such an art. Um, you know, and I don't want to say that big bull hunting is more, but it is, I think, I think it's more of a science. I think that it's more of a science. And I think that big mule deer hunting is more of an art. They're so freaking smart. Big mule deer, 180 plus or five and a half year old plus. Like they are so freaking smart. And I just am addicted. Big buck stories. 10 man, Superman, 77 big buck stories. Um, big buck stories. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have any, obviously any kill big buck, you know, on the ground stories this year. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you one story that was kind of a, um, what I would consider him. He, well, I wouldn't consider, I saw him, he was a mature buck and just a, a reiteration of a, so me and my buddy, uh, it was, it was actually, this just happened a few days ago and we were hunting, uh, one of the units here up in Northwest Wyoming that you, that residents can hunt until November 6th or so. So we're up there November 4th. And so typical, right? This buck was to a T, everything that I've just talked about. He was by himself. He was now, this is November 6th. Like they're not rutting yet, but they're, they're around the corner. Right. And so he was in what I would consider like a staging position, right? There was does all over. We, we hiked up in, you know, to this drainage and oh, group of does here, group of does there, group of does there, group of does group. We probably saw 30 plus does, right? in various groups and no big bucks with them. And in my head at first, I thought "Mm, they're not here yet. Right. All this stuff I've been preaching that I just ranted on. I would have guessed before I kicked this buck up, I would have thought I would have told you, "Mm, I'll bet those bucks are still, you know, whatever, 10 miles deep and 12,000 feet. Well, not on November 6th. Right. And this buck, what actually happened is we were leaving for the evening. We were coming out and it, we were just kind of hunting our way back down uh, out of the drainage. And we ended up coming down a different ridge and then just getting to the trail. We were just, we were just leaving, right? We were just kind of hunting our way out. Um, and we kicked a buck in bedded in some thick, just thick trees, just like I've said, right? He was all by himself. There was just a light skiff of snow, which made this possible. There was a light skiff of snow and he was just in the, there was, I mean, he would have had to go 400 yards in any direction to hit any sort of feed. It was just a really thick, dense, uh, pine trees and stuff. And he was just in there by himself. And what those bucks are doing, a, they're, you know, pounding the food, trying to be, they're just relaxing and they're trying to conserve as much energy as possible and see and that's why he was there is he's, he's staging, he's in striking distance. Cause you know, November 6th, it might only be a week. And one of those does first come into heat. Right. And then it's game on and he is close enough that he can pick those up. Hell, excuse my language. He might even be checking those does at night. He might make a quick little round up the Canyon or whatever. Right. Uh, that time of year, maybe not, maybe a little early, but he was there. Anyway, we kick him up. And I just got a glimpse of one side and I, I didn't see anything more. I didn't, I thought I saw maybe like a front, uh, his front forks. And I told uh, my buddy that I was with, eh, I think he's a little crabby. 
Uh, but he was like, I could tell he was a mature buck. Like the mass was there at least. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to follow him. I'm going to follow these tracks. Cause he, you know, he takes off bounding and there's just, like I said, there's a quarter inch of snow. It was perfect tracking conditions. And so this buck, if you can picture him where he was bedded was down off this finger, kind of down in the bottom, but you know, obviously, like I said, in the thick trees, so he's down off, you know, probably 600 yards back up to the top of the ridge, but he's down in the bottom and he kicks and he goes kind of down. He actually goes down the valley here. He goes down the, the canyon, down the drainage. And so I said, I'm going to follow this buck. And I, I even, I even turned to my buddy and I said, you watch. I said, I bet this buck, if he's a mature buck, like you think he is. And he's obviously he's bounding, right? I mean, I followed him for the first couple hundred yards, he did not stop bounding. And it's insane how much distance they can cover on a bound. Like I, like I was stepping it off and it's about 10 or 12 yards. Um, and, but I said, this buck, he's going to, he's going to head like he's going down this, um, drainage. And I said, but you watch eventually he's going to hook back and he'll do this, this typical big buck J hook. And I even told him, cause I wasn't real serious about killing this buck. Cause the, the glimpse that I got wasn't like, Oh, he's 180 inch deer. It was like, uh, like maybe a mature, he was definitely a mature buck, but I'm like, you know, it was late. I'm like, ah, whatever. Like, I'm just going to follow this deer and see. Cause I didn't think off the top off right off that he was a shooter. Like, like I've got to kill, you know, if I was like hundred percent, I got to kill this deer. And I even called it. I said, Hey, I'm like, if you want, if a guy wanted to kill this buck, he would swing the opposite way. He would go literally back up our tracks. You know, I'm telling this to my buddy. I'm like, this would be how you kill this deer. You go up and get up on top of the finger that's to our, our right now, right. That he kind of came away from. And he, I'm like, he's going to hook back and you watch that sucker will hook and make a J hook and come in and plan on coming right back in behind us. And if you go, basically, you know, you're both making a half circle towards each other. And I said, you'll, I guarantee you, you'll be staring that buck in the eye. Um, if you go the other way and just kind of meet him up there, kind of towards the top of the ridge. Right. Well, but we just, I, I said, that being said, I'm just going to follow his tracks and see what he does. So for a couple hundred yards, he bound, 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 bound. And then guess what he did after like a hundred yards or 200 yards of that, all of a sudden, boop. He almost did a 90 degree to the right and headed towards that, towards the finger, right? That he was bedded up against the base of. And I said, Oh, as soon as I saw those tracks turn, I turned to my buddy and I'm like, see where this is going. <laughs> and so that buck, you know, and then, and then it went from, he stopped bounding right to, he was just on a really, really fast clip. And at that point, I went another, I followed him another maybe 100, 200 yards or so. So I, we'd followed him through 400 yards to where he kind of slowed down to a fast trot probably. And all of a sudden up on the ridge, okay, so again, I'm kind of down in the flat and there's just real scattered pine trees now. And I'm able to see up the, the, the open side of this, this little finger ridge that's coming down our right. And I caught him. I caught a glimpse of him and I said, oh, there he is. And he was at the time, he was even still going away from us. So he's, he's going, he, he's made about a 90 degree from the direction he originally started down to the bottom to get away from us. 
like boom he's taken off down the bottom and he's turned and he's going 90 degrees and as we're watching him he didn't know yet that we could see him from behind we're about 400 450 yards maybe behind him and he all of a sudden he hits the top you know the the that finger ridge that was coming down and he's on the on kind of our side of it but it it there was even a ridge that was skyline and he could have gone over it. He could have just gone over that finger ridge and just kept going. Right. Which is again, when you're hunting those deer and they take off like that, that's what you think they're going to do is, Oh, they're just going to keep going in the, you know, he's going to go five miles in the exact direction away from us. He got to that finger where he knew he wasn't going to be able to see his back trail. And guess what he did? We even thought he went into some little patch of trees right by the edge of the finger where he, again, I just, oh, he's gone, and he went over the edge. Nope. All of a sudden, he, he comes out of those trees, and he's staying on that on that side of the face. And now he's even turning, and he's heading up the ridge, and he's starting. Now he's basically made a 180-degree turn within, you know, 600 yards of where he started or so. Uh, maybe maybe even 1,000 total, right? Not, not quite. Probably six or 700 yards, I guess. He's made a full 180, and guess where he's pointed now? He turned and walked back towards, and I've talked about this kind of crap on the podcast before, but he turns and he's heading. Now his body, he doesn't know we're down in the bottom yet. He doesn't see us. And that buck has made this huge picture, this 600-yard J-hook, and he is looking now right back at where he started. And last he knew from us, we were above him anyway. And so he's basically looking right back, not his back trail, the way that he came, but the last place that he thought that he saw us when we kicked him out of his bed. Because I don't know what he thought we were, people, or possibly a lion or whatever, right? And those suckers learn real quick, like, you know, just disappearing over the ridge, they might get hunted down or something might keep after him. That sucker went up, got into a little bit more of an opening, and he turned 180 back and he just stood there. He stood there for like five minutes, just nah, not five minutes, probably three though, two or three minutes while we sat and kind of looked at him and glassed him up and, you know, and, and finally got to the point, I'm just looking through my scope because I had dropped my pack uh, back when we saw him at very first thinking I might get a shot at him. And so I, I went to walk back finally to get the spotting scope and he finally saw us. But until then, once he, until he finally saw us, that buck, he had done a 600 yard J hook and the sucker was just staring, burning holes through that timber, you know, that's now five, six, 700 or whatever it was yards back to where he last heard something coming after him. And he was just going to stand there. For pro- I bet he stood there till dark or 30 minutes, and then he probably just works his way, you know, back towards there and ended up right back where he was. He eventually saw us down in the bottom moving around, and then that's when he finally, oh, they're now they're down here, and that's when he peeled up over the backside. But until he actually saw us, he was turned and pointed right back. That's my big buck story. Um, you know, he the punchline on him, uh, is he wasn't a big scoring buck at all, but I'm telling you it's, it's (laughs) on the Wyoming hunt. It's about the closest I've come to pulling the trigger. I mean, I had him, I had a shell chamber and I had him right there, like dead to rights. And I got, he was a mature buck 
big, heavy. I bet he was at least four and a half, possibly older, heavy. He was super heavy horn, but he was just like a crabby three, terrible genetics, crabby three, but pretty tall. Um, and I, man, I was this close. Like I, it wasn't like, cause he like, and I, I don't care about the score necessarily, but he just, he had a cool, like super massive, like real heavy, real heavy. Um, and I was, I was this close, man. And part of it would have just been the story of being able to say I hammered that buck, but I let him walk cause whatever. But, Oh man, this guy, let's see. Muley morgue seven. See, this is another reason I do this. No question. Just wanting to hear big buck stories from Jason Carter, Robbie Denning, Mike Duplan and Clay, uh, Clay Bundy, I assume Clay B. Um, okay. I will work on that for you. Muley morgue. Oh man, what are we, 45 minutes? I might have to do a part two of this. Uh, Roman Shelby 98. Where's the best state to hunt mule deer in your opinion? Well, Roman Shelby 98, that all depends. And it depends on where you're located. And I'm trying to see if I can figure out how to get to your, oh, that's just a message. Um, I can't go to their profile from here. Uh, it depends on where you're located. Uh, Roman Shelby 98. That's almost always the answer. If you're in one of the eight or 10 Western big game States, I don't care if it's even Oregon or Washington. It's even California. It is always the number one place to start because a tags are usually easy or over the counter to get for residents. Uh, and B it's a place that, you know, you can do some preseason scouting pretty easily, usually, usually, right. Especially if it's relatively close to your home. Um, that's always the no brainer, right? If you live in Wyoming, Wyoming, if you live in Nevada, Nevada, Utah, Utah, you get the point, right? Um, and then from there, I would say the best state to hunt mule deer depends on your objective. Um, if you are just looking for a good, awesome experience to hunt mule deer, that's going to be a different state than if you're like me and you're just relentlessly looking for big bucks now. Um, because I'm not, listen, I've lived within an hour of the Montana state line now for four years and I've yet to even apply up there and I'm probably not going to, because I'm not convinced that you can go up there even with a bunch of scouting and consistently tip over 180 plus inch deer just on public land with the normal tags or whatever. And there might be a couple draw tags up there or whatever that go, you know, in some premium spots. But, um, so, you know, the, the proximity argument at that point, like I'm not going to hunt Montana. It's right in my backyard now, but I will literally drive down to Arizona <laughs> if they give me a strip tag. Right. So I'm putting all my money into Arizona and Utah and Nevada. Um, you know, even New Mexico, a couple of those, you know, premium hunts, uh, Colorado, obviously before I'll even, you know, dump any dollars for mule deer up into Montana. So depends on your objective. Start with your home court, uh, because that's going to be your biggest advantage, hunt it consistently year after year after year, and then sit down and give yourself a real hardcore look. If you're a trophy hunter, uh, Colorado, um, Nevada, Arizona, and Utah, probably top four. If you are 
just a want to kill a big buck you know then maybe get more you know go one level deeper do you want to kill just a good buck in the high country okay colorado wyoming idaho right even montana at that point you can go kill a good buck in montana every year i'm convinced of that uh but or you you don't want to go in the high country you know you want to hunt late season or whatever then you know okay then it's you know, lower country, Arizona or Colorado on the third or fourth seasons or something like that, right? So it depends on your objective. But the one that's closest to you is the place to start. Oh, big chief wacky bug. This is going to be good, I'm sure. Are the good old days of mule deer behind us? What can we do to improve this situation? Oh, man. You know, the good old days. What does that even mean, right? Is it relative to mine in your lifetime, uh, Henry? I don't know, man. You know, the good old days of like what the, you know, 60s or 70s or whatever they talk about. Like, can I consider those the good old days? I wasn't even alive yet. Um, so I don't know, man. The good old days for us in our era, knowing that, you know, we're around the same age, you know, late 30s, early 40s type of a hunter. Uh, yeah, I think the good old days were like, geez, man, we didn't know it at the time, but like, you know, what? Oh, three, Oh four, Oh five or something like that. Oh six, right before that bad winter, like down in, in Henry's neck of the woods in Colorado, especially, uh, Wyoming was still tipping over. I mean, not still there, obviously there's guys tipping over big bucks, but it just seemed like that was like the crescendo of, of mule deer hunting in my era. Um, are they behind us? who knows? I'm not Nostradamus, man. Um, you know, I think that it, it's always changing. It's like a roller coaster. Um, you know, now will it ever be back to like ever, you know, the good, good, good old days, like the seventies? I don't know, man. Um, and maybe I'm getting my, my decades mixed up. What can we do to improve the situation? Well, I don't know much, you know, much more than just, uh, the, the, in the dirt answer, like the nitty gritty, like at your local level, getting involved, right? Like, because it takes people there squawking and, and, or holding the positions to make the decisions to make the change any situation for better or worse or whatever our objective is. Right. Um, you know, obviously the bare minimum is just being a part of, you know, pay your, uh, you know, 30 or 50 bucks, whatever to mule deer foundation or, uh, you know, Rocky mountain elk, if you're an elk guy or, you know, whoever the organization is that you believe it, I'm not saying one way or the other, you know, endorsing one or the other, but, um, you know, being a part of the change obviously, and then bare minimum donating a little bit of dollars every year, uh, you know, but collectively, I guess, it comes change always comes when the the mass you know the majority of people in any whether this is in you know mule deer in the west or politics or whatever is when the majority of whoever's involved decides that they want to something to change so if we're not happy with mule deer hunting you know then we need to make change you know we need to all collectively get behind uh you know some ideas of how to make you know or at least start the conversations and we do i think for the most part. So I don't know, man. It's like Andy says on the office, like, I wish there was a way to know 
when you're in the good old days before you're out of the good old days or something like that. Um, I don't know, you know, it, it just do our, do our best, stay involved. Uh, you know, you know, uh, donate a little money to people who, you know, if you maybe you live in the Midwest and you're not going to get out or you live in, you know, wherever. And so I don't know. Cole shakes. Is it possible to be, that country road hunter asking for a friend actually Cole shakes. I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, it is man. Cause like back country, you know, one thing I'm learning with these big, big bucks is they don't, they're indifferent, man. They don't care. They don't care if it's, you know, a quarter mile from a dirt road or, you know, down in the flats or if it's 20 miles deep in the nastiest Canyon that no one's ever set foot in, you know, in the Rocky mountain West, they literally don't care as long as they feel concealed and it's a proven, you know, has a proven history of them not getting chased around and harassed. So can, you know, anyway, the reason I'm saying that is like, I think back country, you know, can be, can be what you make it buddy. Uh, so can you be a backcountry road hunter? You bet. And frankly, I think it's going to be the next era of kind of outsmarting big bucks specifically if we're talking mule deer, which you didn't ask about mule deer, but I am, uh, where guys, you know, realize that, you know, cause the, listen, the back is getting overcrowded. It just is. It's almost ridiculous. Uh, you can't, you can't out backcountry people anymore. We used to do it back in the day when I first started this. We'd just be dumber and stupider and a little better shape than everyone. And just, oh, we're just going to go to the nastiest hole in the peak in the highest place. You can't do that anymore. There will be guys there if, if there's any sort of tag numbers or quality of deer. Um, and so, like, I know a guy that just killed a buck that's probably pushing 200. And I guarantee you it was glassed from a road, you know, and a thousand yards off a road. And then he went and killed it. So, you know, I think there's this era now or this shift of guys who really know what they're doing, um, with mule deer specifically, probably not, um, probably not elk so much, but where, you know, you could probably, uh, do some damage hunting from a road asking for a friend. He says, uh, Kenneth, what's up, buddy? Hey, had a heck of a season, man. Uh, talk about a guy who's addicted to just getting after it and like, paid off dividends killed a monster buck uh kenneth throw will mule deer consume my life forever <laughs> i didn't read that before <laughs> yes they absolutely will buddy and you know uh join the party maybe you and i can you know go be consumed with mule deer together that sounded a little you know what but uh <laughs> yes they will consume your life forever uh, Bracken strokes tactics for mid to late October mule deer hunting. Uh, we kind of, we touched on that, right? Uh, find a, don't assume they've left any sort of high country spot. Just assume that they're utilizing the country differently. And then specifically like, where is that hardcore feed in that unit in that area? Right. Um, now again, they, they may drop, you know, I'm not saying that they'll be right up at 12,000 feet. They might be down at 9,500, but they're still on the same general mountain range, I bet, within a square mile or two miles or whatever, right? They just might drop down <clears throat> and they might be down where the aspen trees are now instead of up just where the conifers and the tree line is, right? But they're still in the same mountain range, but they're going to be where that, whatever the 
best predominant feed is that they can get away with without leaving the country and heading somewhere else. Cause like we talked, the best feed is still right up there in or around the high country that they started in. He says also tips for field judging bucks. Um, First tip is if you're serious about field judging bucks, you need to put your hands and eyes and a tape on as many possible mule deer as you can. And, or you need to spend time with someone who knows really who can judge a mule deer within five inches consistently and bounce off, you know, just always, 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 always playing that game. Anytime you see a deer, I don't care if it's, you know, one that you're looking at in the spotter, uh, in hunting season, or you walk into a freaking gas station and they've got, you know, some big old muley, you know, that was killed in the eighties or whatever up on the wall. Always like, here's a good example. My family, my wife's family, we always rent these, uh, Airbnb type cabins for like, you know, either Thanksgiving or Christmas or new year's. <clears throat> and we went into one, I think last year, uh, for Christmas or New Year's, whatever it was. And anyway, there's a buck hanging on their wall. <laughs> and what did I do? You know, I'm going to be there for like four days or five days, whatever it was. Oh, like first night I ripped that sucker off the wall and had all my brother-in-laws. <laughs> we're all, we're all given scores and guessing of what this year is going to be. And we're running a tape on him and calculating it and, you know, and whatever. And so that's the first tip is if you want to get good at judging field judging mule deer, judge mule deer like literally put tapes on them and see oh okay that's what you know five and a half inches of bases look like because i've seen it 25 times now or whatever that's what a 19 inch g2 looks like and you know then you start piecing them together and i don't listen i'm not the guy in the field i'll be I, like i can i'll dang sure get within 10 inches 90 percent of the time that's pretty easy 60% of the time I'll get within five inches, 60% of the time it works every time. And that's not great, but that's pretty dang good. Right. If you, if more than more often than not, you can get within five inches, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm getting every single year I'm getting better and better. Uh, no, no surprise here, but you almost always overjudge right? Starting out, like if you're new to it, you're almost always going to overjudge for whatever reason it is. You think it's bigger, you misjudging the inches or whatever. That being said, when I field judge deer, I'm getting pretty good at it and I do not. And it's why I'll get burned every so often, but I do not, I'm not a guy that can sit and will add up the inches. I just don't do it. There's guys, right? The Carters and the Robbies and these guys, they'll literally sit and break down. Okay. That is a, you know, 18 inch g2 and that's a 12 inch g3 and that's a you know there's a 10 inch g4 and those main beams are 24 to probably 26 and four inch eye guard and like oh there's the mass and the inside spread and they'll be like, oh, that's a 185 buck or whatever right i'm not that guy it's just a feel thing for me right it's just like i just will sit and break down like okay now i'll sit and like okay if he's I'll, I'll do like a, a bracketing thing, right? Like, okay, his main frame, especially if he's got extras or he's missing points, right? If it's like a big three pointer or he's a six by eight, I'll be like, okay, the frame on that deer is probably, you know, that's, uh, looks like about a 170 buck. Okay. But then he's got two, eight, you know, nine, he's got 17 inches of extras, you know, on 170 frame. And like, you know, we're pushing, you know, whatever that is, we're pushing 190 inches, right? So 
that's kind of the tactic I use, but I have looked over and scored and looked at and glassed so many freaking deer. I feel like, you know, to get to where I can just go kind of off of my feel when I look at them. So, and it's not perfect. Like I said, I get burned every so often. I'll look at a buck and, uh, you know, I don't know. And he's bigger than I thought rarely, but usually it's, oh, he's actually smaller or whatever. Right. So that's tips for field judging bucks. <laughs> Jordan Cornell, wide or tall guy? Uh, wide or tall? Oh, between those two, I don't know, man. Wide, wide's just cool, you know. You know, even though I don't really, I know it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the score or you know whatever. Like I grew up in the era where a thirty-inch buck was the pinnacle, and I've I've killed one in my life. And I'm looking at it right now and crazy enough, it, it's this two by three, basically. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and it was because of two little kickers, two little two inch kickers going off either side. He's got like a, you know, probably a 28 inch frame. And then he's like 31 wide with those kickers, but uh, wide or tall. Yeah, I don't know. Wide, honestly, though, the real answer anymore is like mass and extras. <laughs> like it's why that, that, crabby three that was only out to his ears the other day almost he was this close man like i almost put a bullet through him because he was so massive i could tell he's a mature buck and he had a ton of mass and he wouldn't have scored jack crap would have been one of my smaller scoring deer lately but um yeah mass and or like extras you know kickers extra something crazy in in the way of you know of extras and stuff uh gray light one of the greatest uh mule deer hunters out there did you i can't say that over the air man come on uh inappropriate jake noise what's a mule deer my buddy jake he doesn't hunt uh other than i i introduced him like hunting rabbits in college and stuff so just listen jake's a good example of a guy that we want on our side jake if you're listening you know these are like buddies who are probably never ever ever gonna hunt but Jake has had such a good experience with me with guns and hunting and just, you know, eating meat and all that kind of stuff over the years that like, if push comes to shove, my buddy Jake is not going to vote against hunting or against guns, right? Jake doesn't have to be a hunter. And this is a good lesson to learn, right? Uh, Jake doesn't have to be a hunter. I don't expect him to ever hunt. He's a little Metro, you know, to do that, I think. <laughs> Uh, taught me how to dress and coordinate and wear matching, you know, belt and shoes and stuff like that. Um, and I taught him that, you know, guns are cool and guns are okay and you can be safe and, you know, and hunting is fun and cool. And not that he what didn't know that before, but, you know, his interaction with me just, I think, hopefully solidified, um, you know, that if, if push comes to shove and Jake's in that middle 60%, right, that's the, that's the dangerous Part. there's always going to be the antis there's always going to be the hardcore hunters it's that dangerous 60 percent in the middle the majority that like we have to have their vote we have to do good things in their eyes right we can't be posting up brutal you know pictures and stupid you know things that we know are maybe legal but like it's not a good perception of someone like him who doesn't necessarily you know hunt or know and he might open up you know, an Instagram and I, you know, if I posted something, you know, inappropriate on my page that like makes hunters look bad, right? Arrows sticking out of deer skulls, 
for example. He might look at that, you know, if we weren't buddies and just, you know, he sees that randomly on Instagram or something, or one of his friends posts it, you know, forwards it to him and it's like, dude, you know, freaking hunters, like, this is crazy. Like, can you believe, you know, and that would be it, right? So he's the guy we need, uh, the Jakes of the world, uh, you know, to be on our side when push comes to shove. He doesn't have to hunt. So make sure, you you know, throw those guys some uh, <laughs> backstrap stakes when you come home from a hunt. You know, if you're, unlo- if you're, as long as you're not like me and you're actually successful in <laughs> killing stuff. Um, Jake knows what a mule deer is. Pistol Sand Southern. Southern Utah general deer units. What are the odds of finding a 170 plus buck? <clears throat> well, um, good. You know, the, like, are, are there 170 plus bucks in the Southern Utah general deer units? hundred percent. Every single one of them has a 170 plus that being said, uh, kill it, you know, them being there and you finding them is two different things. I know guys that have gone into those units the first, you know, year or two of hunting them and didn't grow up there and didn't know. And, uh, they get, they get their butt handed to them looking for a 170 plus buck, right? Those there's a lot of deer, but there, you know, sometimes there's no deer and I don't know, man. Uh, but the odds better than not, if you know what you're doing, uh, two more. And then I'm through this bill Simmons. Oh, there might be some others actually bill Simmons, 86. Can you tell a buck track from a doe track? Uh, if it's a mature buck, you sure as heck can, uh, just the flat out size. Um, you know, again, like a, a, an immature buck, right? Like a one and a half, two and a half year old buck. Probably not. You know, they're probably similar to a doe track, <clears throat> but who cares about those tracks? Uh, mature buck, you betcha, uh, the width of, you know, just the, just the overall size, those big buck tracks, they're more likely, especially if it's not like real, like deep mud or snow, they're more likely to leave their dew claw prints in the back. You know, they're going to be over what I want to say, like four inches long. Um, you know, big rounded kind of rounded toes as those and young bucks, they'll have real sharp pointy, uh, toes on the front, but just the overall size. I mean, listen, if you look at it and you're not sure, like, Oh, is that a doe or is that a big, it's not a big buck. If you look at it and you're like, geez, man, like that looks like an elk, almost like a young elk, but it, it doesn't have the same, you know, wide shape as an elk. Like that's when, you know, right. When it's like a no brainer, that's, and you can definitely tell. Hadley's, um, how, or how would, or do you personally hunt deer with a bow during November, December? Uh, I don't, I don't know that I've ever hunted bow, uh, mule deer with a bow during November, December, but I could tell you my tactic would be, uh, find the does cause that's where the bucks are going to be. So first of all, that's, you know, just finding them. And then the trick there is like, you know, they are going to be moving. So I would maybe, you know, I don't know. I would almost like consider tree stand hunting. If you know, it's like a, if you can find a, you know, cause the problem that time of year is if you're 2000 yards from a buck and you spot him with your bow in late November, you know, the guys deal with this on the Wasatch front, for example, if you think there's any chance that you see that buck going, you know, over there on the hillside and he's, cruising on the side of that hillside and you think you're going to get over there and find him again, or he's even going to be on the same mountainside in, you know, December, (laughs) like he is cruising, looking for does. The only thing that's going to stop him is if he finds a herd of does and he's working them or something like that. So, 
you know, especially if you see a buck on the move, like you're just not going to catch up with them that time of year probably. And so using their movement to their disadvantage, right? Finding their travel corridors, you know, passes and shoots and heavily used trails and stuff like that. Cause they are going to be, you know, almost working like their little trap line, right? They're going to be going just nonstop looking for hot does. Um, and so maybe posting up on heavily used trails, like tree stand, like I said, or, you know, a ground blind, uh, trying some ambush stuff, <clears throat> but yeah, find the does, find the area that they're in that way. And then, you know, kind of outsmart them that way. So, whew. Let's go. That is all that was on my personal page. Let's go into the team backcountry page here and see if there was anything different or substantial that I can answer in here. I don't think there is anything. Um, here's one. How to tell people that hunt for meat to stop accumulating points and apply for good units. <laughs> See Willie eight, <laughs> how to tell people, uh, here, I'll tell you how to tell people, uh, burn your points. Stop. <laughs> Listen here. Here's the better Here's the better answer to this question with another question. Are you being honest with yourself? Are you really a meat hunter? Cause here's what people use. They use, this is a perfect example, okay? At This is a little introspection time. If you consider yourself, number one, a meat hunter, like if you're, if that's your only goal, it's like, oh no, I'm just about the meat. And you're accumulating any points anywhere, you're full of crap. Because deep, deep down, you're trying to draw these really good hunts so you can go and kill these big, big bucks and have the big antlers right on the wall. Uh, if you were truly just a meat hunter and you were just out there to kill a buck to fill the freezer and you're a meat hunter, hashtag meat hunter, whatever, uh, there is literally, I can't think of a single state or reason unless you just, you know, are in a state like Nevada, for example, and you're a resident or non-resident even, and you're putting in for all the easiest to draw hunts that aren't hundred percent guaranteed, which I don't even think is a thing. I think if you really want to tag in Nevada, you could basically get one every year in some unit and they're going to hold bucks, right? If you're just a meat hunter, who cares? Right. Uh, but if you're holding on to points in almost any Western state, like you are full crap, you're not a true meat hunter. Um, uh, and here's another thing is like, you know, if you are now on the flip side, if you're like, you know what, you're right. Like I actually want to kill big bucks and I like the meat cause that's okay too. Right. I want to kill a, a decent buck, you know, but, and I need a few points. Well, that's what elk cow elk tags are for is for meat hunts. Right. And even some doe tags. I don't like killing does in the situation that we're in with mule deer across the West. It feels kind of wrong to be tipping does over. So I just personally don't do it, but right now at least, but probably ever uh but cow elk doe antelope like that's literally why god invented those hunts is so that you didn't have to burn your deer points you could still put meat in the freezer <laughs> so that's how i would tell people to go about that but in general even trophy mule deer hunters like they're not accumulating points in most states right they might in a state like arizona or nevada that's like these long shot you know grant you know swing for the fences type hunts but like Colorado, like 
these guys aren't building up points. They're not building points up, and they're going and killing big bucks every year. Um, so anyway, just don't. Just stop. Okay. Everything else looked pretty on par with what we'd already answered. So that wraps up our Mule Deer Q&A. Uh, appreciate you guys listening. Hopefully I said something that made any sort of sense there and uh, was, you know, not completely ridiculous. If you uh, want to give any feedback on anything you heard or have any questions, uh, I will remind you if the, if this is still in the month of November, like I'm hoping it will be, um, and we haven't sold out of too much stuff, right? This promo that we're doing on this backpack logistics business, the, this food business that I have, it's really contingent on just a few items, you know, still being in stock. And so that's why you'll see some of the stuff is just flat out of stock. Like we just, we, we don't have any, and I'm not going to order more at this time of the year. So that's part of the reason we're doing the promo. Um, so if there's anything left, uh, code November, uh, N O V I said in my last podcast, if you can't spell November, you shouldn't be buying stuff online. And that's still true. But N-O-V-E-M-B-E-R, all lowercase, that will get you basically the equivalent of one free, as long as you put one custom meal kit or a whole, you know, a whole day custom built kit in your cart uh, from the custom meals, you'll get uh, up to, uh, you basically get it all for free minus the shipping. <clears throat> Some people were asking why we pulled the pro pack options down. Well, that's because a lot of every one of those pro packs ended up having something. The pro packs are things like, like myself and Tony Treach and Jordan and shed crazy had built out uh, Clint Casper and uh, I can't remember who else, Tony Treach, Jordan, bud, blah, 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 I'm missing somebody anyway um, that we had built out that ha it had something that was out of stock. So we had to pull the whole thing down, right? Because it's kind of an all or nothing with the pro pack. So, but go into the custom builder, whatever's still left, uh, try stuff, right? It might, whatever, who cares? It's basically free and you just paying me for shipping. And then, you know, I would encourage you to buy 20 more bags of food after you put one in your cart. Uh, but, you know, you can get away with just putting one in there. So uh, backpacklogistics.com and then hit the custom meals. So appreciate you guys listening. Hope you had a great fall and uh, catch you on the next one. See ya. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit FindingBackCountry.com.